Well, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. We'll begin this morning, verse 27. You find that on page 880 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Do also want to let you know, in case you're unaware, that I believe it's a week from this Thursday is uh, Thanksgiving. And uh, it is right around the corner. And one of the things that we like to do as a church in this season is to gather the Sunday night before Thanksgiving for a time of testimony and praise and devotion as we kind of get our hearts right to be thankful. And so this Sunday night, I think it's, an, it's a week from tonight. Are you sure? All right. I have no... Just all right. We'll just delete that from the tape. Um, all right. So it's next Sunday night. Not th- did I say this Sunday night? It is not tonight. It is in one week from today on the 19th. I knew that. That's what I was trying to say. And so uh, please come, and I, I trust you'll be blessed by that. I also want to let you know, last week, uh, uh, we certainly were very thankful to have our brother Jeff King come and bring us God's Word. Uh, uh, Mr. King mentioned an individual by the name of Witness Lee. I believe he quoted him once, mentioned him a couple times. Uh, a- after consulting, uh, the elders consulting amongst ourselves, we, we simply would just like to warn you about this man, Witness Lee. Uh, he has a number of theologies in which we would consider um, aberrant, if not uh, unorthodox. And so uh, we were unaware that uh, Mr. King was going to uh, mention him to you. And so if you're kind of inclined, based upon his message, to go discover this man, Witness Lee, we would just simply want to advise you to be very careful with his writings. And it would probably be best just to disregard them completely. So we just want to let you know about that. So here we are in Luke chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 27. Hear now the word of God. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now He is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask Him any question. Our Father, we're thankful for Your Word this morning. It unveils to us the truths about eternal life, and we ask that You would Help us to understand it and to delight in it even when it is confounding to us. So guide us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last Sunday that we gathered here. If you were here, you of course remember that it was a a special time of prayer for us, as is the first Sunday of November every year, to pray for the persecuted church. just so happened that while we were praying for the persecuted church, a small Southern Baptist Church, as you now know, in Sutherland Springs, Texas, uh, faced unspeakable tragedy. That at the hands of a man bent on causing as much harm as possible, 26 individuals lost their lives. One family in particular lost eight members. And you think about this, and in particular I think about such tragedies, and, and as a pastor, I'm thinking about that pastor and those who are ministering and the thought that comes to my mind is, what, what do you say to those who are left behind? How do you help them to face tomorrow? How, 
How do you endure such a weight of sorrow? In fact, we gathered this Wednesday night in our annual members meeting. And in addition to praying for this congregation and the community around it, we consider ten truths that God would have us understand in light of such tragedies. But if there's one truth in which I think we should cling to, there's one thing in which I would want to go back again and again and again as a pastor living in a community filled with this kind of disaster. One thing that I would say according to the authority of the Word of God is that there is unequivocally, without doubt, life after death. That we believe that we shall pass through death And we shall live in a life called the resurrected age that will be infinitely greater than the best life ever lived in this age. And in case you are wondering if this is simply wishful thinking or the naive hopes of a simple man who lives in a world of suffering and pain, I would suggest you consider the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who said in verse 38 of Luke 20, Now He is not... God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. Jesus said there is life after death. And by the way, this is not just some weightless announcement of a rabbi 2,000 years long gone, but He proved it because just a matter of days later, like five days after He announced this, the Lord Jesus Christ historically, publicly, bodily rose from the dead. The firstborn of the resurrection and that we shall too be raised if we are in Christ. We're of course coming to the end of our study of Luke at the end of Jesus' time here upon the earth. We know now that Jesus has caused quite a stir in, in many ways as a 30-year-old man or thereabouts appeared out of nowhere and began to teach these powerful sermons and then, and then to act with equal power, casting out demons with a word, cleansing the lepers, and causing the lame to leap, and the blind to see, and the the mute to shout their praises to God. He, he, He forgave sins of the notorious sinners, and cast aside precious long-held traditions and gave us new and accurate interpretations of the Word of God. And followers from all over began to gravitate to Him. And, and, and Jesus went on and He would calm the storm and feed thousands of people miraculously, all the while confounding the experts and teaching in parables, even raising the dead itself, accepting the title of Messiah. And all the while the crowds kept growing and growing and growing. This, of course, did not please those who were in power. The last man to cause this religious stir, cousin of Jesus, in fact, lost his head for it. But rather than fleeing and getting away from those in power, Jesus enters into the capital city, the place of power, boldly. Almost forcing them to act, isn't he? And, and he does it in time of Passover when millions of pilgrims have gathered into the city of David out of this religious zeal, all under the very nervous and watchful eye of the Roman conquerors. And that would be on Sunday. Monday, he would enter into the temple and he would cleanse it of all the commercial activity at the height of like the commercial season. It would be like shutting down Amazon on Black Friday, right? He stopped all this business that was taking place at the very peak of the selling season. And then on Tuesday, he returns back to the temple and he teaches to thousands. And yet the leaders now come to fight back. That's what Luke 20 is all about. At first it was the priests and the scribes and the elders came to Jesus to trap him in a question about his authority. Simply dismissing that question, a second trap was laid for him, this time by the Pharisees and the Herodians. A question, trying to combine religion and politics, remember? A question about, what should we pay taxes to the occupier? And Jesus answers, gives an 11-word answer that's still confounding many and causing us to think deeply and dismisses that trap. And, and, and with these two attempts brushed off, a third trap emerges, this time from a different group mentioned in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees. And then Luke tells us about them, those who deny the resurrection. This will be the only time in Luke's Gospel that he will mention this group called the Sadducees. They are the aristocratic, wealthy, educated 
priestly class. The high priest would be a Sadducee. And they would make up the majority of the Sanhedrin, which is the 71 member ruling body of the nation and people of Israel. Now, unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees were not popular with the people, but they didn't care. They, after all, they had power, they had wealth, they were very elitist. I try to put them in modern day kind of uh, terminology. They're like the, uh, the university class. Look down their nose on the simple people and their simple beliefs. And in fact, the reason why they're unpopular was because of their beliefs. So Luke tells us there in verse 27, they don't believe in the resurrection. We find more of their beliefs, or at least that belief is confirmed in Acts 23. And so why don't you keep your finger here in Luke and, and turn over to Acts 23. It's an interesting story in which Paul is arrested and he's standing on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of Israel. And Paul realizes that there are Sadducees on this body and there are Pharisees on this body. And these individuals did not agree on certain things. And so Paul tries to get them to stop focusing on himself and start focusing on one another. You see in verse 6, Acts 23, verse 6, Now Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Brothers, Am I a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees? I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection from the dead that I am on trial. He says, I'm a Pharisee. You're only bringing me here because I believe in the resurrection from the dead. You see, he's trying to stir the pot, isn't he? And he succeeds, as you see in verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so you, the, the Sadducees, they reject angels, they reject the spiritual realm, they reject eternal life. You perhaps, if you're raised in the church, you've heard the Sadducees are sad you see because they don't believe in the resurrection right they deny it that's not all they deny of the 39 books in the old testament the sadducees would deny 34 of them holding only to the authority of the torah or the first five books of the old testament so they they're kind of individuals who believed in god but have a very stripped down kind of non-supernatural view of god i think you'll find many of them by the way in uh, many American churches, they go by different names, of course, but let's just worry about living an ethical life. Yes, we believe in God, but, but really what we want to do is have a good life and enjoy life and give little thought to things like eternity. I think these individuals are very contemporary. And they didn't, of course, like Jesus because he's threatening their way of life. And in fact, he's shutting down their business. It was the Sadducees who had authority over the market that was taking place in the temple. So they come to discredit Jesus, the educated Powerful, priestly class, the elite, come to put this Galilean country bumpkin in his place. As you see in verse 28. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, bro man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 25, this practice called a, a leveret marriage. Israel, of course, being an anxious, ancient agrarian culture, there was a law that if your brother dies and he leaves a wife, a widow, but there is no children to care for that widow, the brother is to marry her. They would do this for two reasons. One, as you see here, to raise up an heir for his brother's land. So you would not benefit from your brother's death. Only his children would. But the second reason, I think perhaps the main reason, is this is how they would care for widows in that day. It's a very merciful law of God. We see a very beautiful incidence of this in the book of Ruth, where a man caring for a relative's widow that she might be uh, pr protected and provided for. And so they bring this up to Jesus. They say, okay, reminding him of the lover at marriage. And then they come with this very unfortunate hypothetical situation. A very troubled family, as you see in verse 29. Now there were, he says, so they say, seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. 
Now here's the question, verse 33. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For seven had her as wife. And so this is a terrible story, isn't it? I mean, you can think about seven brothers in succession dying only after marrying the same woman. I mean, talk about unlucky in love, right? I think around brother number five, you would say, I don't know about this. What, what is she cooking? What's going on here? Right? And yet, evidently, he's all very godly brothers. They all go through with their duty, and they, they marry this woman. And then the question comes, well, she's had seven husbands. And, well, Jesus, okay, if there is a resurrection, then who's her husband in the afterlife? I mean, are they just destined to like an eternity of awkward family dinners? I mean, what, what's going to happen here? Who is she going to be married to? And in other words, you see, it's easy to see the motivation behind this question, isn't it? The point is just simply to prove that the resurrection is stupid. And those who believe in it, including Jesus, are stupid too. And so they come very confident with their slam dunk case. Even one with a good laugh, I think. And I, I trust this is not the first time that they thought of this question. This was a riddle that they most likely would use to mock the resurrection and, and the Jews who believed in it. And so there they stand with smug smiles on their face, satisfied that they alone have stumped Jesus. Showing, of course, everyone that they alone have the truth. But as we have seen now in Luke 20, it's really hard to stump Jesus. In fact, all they prove is that they misunderstand marriage. They misunderstand the resurrection. They misunderstand the power of God. And they misunderstand Scripture. In fact, they do not have access to truth. They do not know it. Christ does, however. And so he goes on to begin to explain what the resurrection is like. So I want us to consider, as we think about the resurrection, first the truths about the resurrection, then we'll consider the proof, why we believe in it, and lastly, how it comes about, the source of the resurrection. So the truth of the resurrection. Now, in order to do this, we're going to be in Luke's gospel, of course, but I want you to turn to Mark's account. This is just for a moment. Turn to Mark chapter 12. And I think this is helpful for us. I think this is a very kind of contemporary word for us. And what we see in Mark's account, that Jesus not only explains the resurrection, but he teaches us that the truth about such ideas is very important for us. In other words, truth matters. And I think it's important, we'll look at what Jesus says in a moment, but it's important to think about what he didn't say. So they come to him and say, okay, whose wife will, will she be? And you notice Jesus doesn't say, well, you guys don't worry about the truth. Why are you all bent up about the truth? You know, be concerned with the experience in your hearts. It's, it's not uh, truth. The answer's not important. What's important is that you, you follow my example and you love people like I do. It's not the, he doesn't say it's not the destination that matters, but it's the journey. Enjoy the ride. Make the most out of it. He doesn't say to them, listen, you guys need to go discover your own truth. Nor does he say, hey, well, there are many answers to this question. You have your answer to it, and I have my answer to it, and they're both right. And he doesn't say anything like that, which we might hear in our day. Instead, look in verse 24 of Mark chapter 12. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. You are wrong. And if that's not clear, verse 27, he is not the God, uh, not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So I want you to see that truth matters. In our very relativistic day, we're Everyone seems to think religion is finding a system that works for you. That is not religion. Religion is pursuit of truth. And the truth will work for you. But we, we don't believe this because it works for us. We believe it because it's true. Now, we shouldn't fight over every belief we have. There is no doubt about that. But there are people who say, I don't need theology. My relationship with God is not about thinking. It's not about truth. It's about how I feel. My relationship with God is about what I do. And theology just gets in my way. And Jesus will come to such ideas and say, you are wrong. You are quite wrong. We need to think. We need to be renewed by the transforming of our minds, as Scripture says. We need theology. We need good theology. Jesus cares about the truth. And he offers us an unfolding of the truth about the resurrection, as you see back in Luke's Gospel. 
So what, what can we learn about the resurrection? We're going to learn everything we want to learn about the resurrection. In fact, we probably learned some things, at least initially, we don't want to learn about the resurrection. Consider the truth about marriage. Look in verse 34 of Luke 20. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus begins to explain that eternity is, is very different from your existence right now. And one of the differences in the resurrected state is that there is no marriage. The, or at least marriage, not like the marriage we have here. Ma- marriage, the marriages that we have are not forever. And the Sadducees simply believe that the resurrected state is just like this life right now, including marriage. So marriage here, marriage there. And Jesus says, no, marriage is temporary. Now, marriage, of course, is incredibly important. Marriage, marriage helps us to love. Marriage helps us to, to live in covenant. Marriage helps us to learn to sacrifice. Marriage helps us to live out our faith. Marriage is we find we're able to give ourselves and to, to be given to. Marriage helps us to, to know God. Marriage helps us and points to us over and over again to eternal realities Yet, according to Christ, marriage itself is not eternal. God has, has planned something different. And I would not just say something different, but something more. That whatever heaven's going to be like, it will be infinitely better than marriage. Marriage is not eternal. Now, for some, that may be good news. Right? For others, like my wife, it's exceedingly bad news. Right? Right? <laughs> I'll just, <laughs> clearly, uh, clearly this, I mean, some of you are even looking at me and it's like, I don't know about this. I mean, this is leads to, does it not? This is troubling to us. This, no, this is not your life first, is it? That marriage is temporary. There's this, for many, a profound disappointment in this idea. There are many who long for the reunion in heaven with their spouse who has gone on ahead. And they read this, Jesus says, no marriage, that hurts. For many of us, isn't it? Of course, there is a reunion in heaven. The Bible is clear. You, you will still be you. They will still be, he will be, still be he or she, she. Abraham's still Abraham, as we'll see in a moment. First Thessalonians 4 tells us that we will be reunited with those we love. So if your spouse dies before you, you will, and they're both in Christ, you will be, if you will, reunited with your spouse. They just will not be your spouse in heaven. And I think the reason this is difficult is because it's hard to appreciate what heaven is like. The Bible does not give us a lot of information about heaven. But I'll tell you, whatever heaven is, it's better than what this life is. And and there's no one in heaven, there's no one ever in heaven who's thinking, oh, if I could just get back to earth, if I could just go back to those days. I mean, we we, we will remember this life, there's no doubt about it. We'll, We'll see the big picture of this life and we'll thank God for this life. But no one in heaven will ever long for this life to return. That's what I would say if I was pastoring in Sutherland Springs. As great as the, the tragedy is in our own heart, for those who have gone ahead, they do not want to come back. They have finally made it home. And we see pictures of the saints in heaven, and it seems like they only know joy and love and peace. And so as good as marriage is now, God has something better planned. I think this is why Jesus in Mark's account says to the Sadducees, You do not know the power of God. God is going to do something so amazing. You and I cannot appreciate it in this life. In fact, let me give you uh, an illustration that might help you. Think of a five-year-old. Right? And and what is a a five-year-old interested in? What does a five-year-old like to do? I'm an expert on things like this, okay? A five-year-old, they like, uh, they like Sesame Street. They like, they like little plastic men, right? And you move their arms and legs. And or they like little cloth dolls. And they like, um, they like marshmallows in their cereal, right? They like, they like sticks and they make them into swords and guns and, and weapons. That's what a, that's what a five-year-old is interested in. Now, if you're like 20 plus, most of us, I think, most of the healthy individuals here, right? We, that does not interest us, right? We don't want marshmallows in our cereal anymore, right? 
And, and not only that, we, now that we're adults, we look back at the fi- our state of five and we say, oh, I don't want to go back to that stage. It was good. I appreciate God for it, but I don't long for it. And then the five-year-old looks at your stage and it's, it is incomprehensible how your life can be better than their life. Because a five-year-old doesn't long to be like you. I had a conversation with my nine-year-old last night. And we're taking, I'm teaching a special Sunday school class. We're bringing many of our children into it. My nine-year-old says, Dad, do I have to go to Sunday school? I've been twice now. Do I have to go a third time? And I said, yeah, son, you have to go. And believe it or not, he was disappointed. I mean, that's hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, all of us were very excited and it's very encouraging and, and helpful. But for a nine-year-old, the idea of sitting in that Sunday school class is not a joyful thought. Right? And, and, and it, it, they, they can't understand. They don't understand what it's like. Right? You offer a five-year-old, you want steak or chicken nuggets. Right? Chicken nuggets. Right? <laughs> Covered in ketchup. And we're adults. We don't eat ketchup anymore. And we like steak, right? I mean, we have gone. Steak is better. But they cannot understand it. The difference between this life and heaven is, is infinitely better. And I think it's probably equally incomprehensible to us in our state of maturity. My kids, my, sometimes my kids, I try to disabuse them of this thought. They think I work one hour a week, okay? And I say, no, Daddy works more than that. And so they say, well, what do you do? I say, well, Daddy, Daddy's going to, you know, it's Monday, so Daddy's going to go, and Daddy's going to close his blinds and put on his do not disturb, and Daddy's going to read for about four or five hours. And in their mind, that's like the worst day ever, okay? <laughs> And it was her five-year-old Stephen and probably 17-year-old Stephen. But 43-year-old Stephen wakes up on Monday morning thinking, what treasure will I unearth in God's Word? I can't wait to get there and open my books and open this scripture, right? And I wonder if this is why God says so little about heaven because we're just immature right now. We, we can't get it. We, we, we can't appreciate it. And maybe he'll say something like, well, heaven's like a day at the beach. But for some of you say, well, that doesn't sound like fun. And I don't have sand and... The sun and getting burned? No, I don't, no, thank you. Or maybe he would say, well, heaven's like a golf game in springtime. And well, there'd be some of us that say, well, no, I gave up golf because that brings evil out of my heart. Right? I don't want golf. Right? Or heaven's like a, a camping at an alpine lake at 12,000 feet all by yourself. And, and yeah, some would say amen. Some would say, are you kidding me? I have to sleep in a tent? No, thank you. Right? Or heaven's like a great big family reunion. You know, oh God, anything but that, right? <laughs> or heaven's like a library with an endless supply of Italian roast coffee and no creamer at all and roaring fire. And, and some would say, no, that's why I left college. I don't want that anymore. See, it, we, we're not at the stage where we can appreciate what it's like. Heaven, I think, is incomprehensible to us, but God knows what you will like at that time. God knows what he is doing. In fact, that's kind of what we don't know about heaven. But you know what we do know? That it will be perfect. And that you will be perfect. And that you and I will be free from sin. In fact, another way to put it is you and I will be perfectly lovely. And so when God, Jesus says there's no marriage in the resurrection, he can't mean there's less love. In fact, in this life, sometimes it's hard to love, isn't it? And it's hard to love for two reasons. One, people are not lovely. Right? There are some people hard to love, but really all, everyone's hard to love. Some people are just more hard to love because they have sin in their life and it makes it difficult to love them. The other reason why loving is hard is because of your sin and my sin. And so love does not emerge from me because I'm selfish and I think about myself and not you. And so love is, is sometimes difficult. It's, it's hard to love. When you and I get to heaven, we will never have to try to love. Never. In fact, when you get to heaven, you couldn't stop loving even if you tried. You know why? Because everyone will be perfectly lovely and you will be perfectly loving and love will reign supreme in our hearts and you will for the first time ever love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and you will do it without trying. And you will love completely and eternally your neighbor as yourself. 
We will love perfectly in heaven, and we will be loved perfectly in heaven. And that, that's beyond anything that we can understand. The greatest love here compared to the love in heaven is like a candle next to the blazing sun. And so do not read no marriage in heaven and think, okay, there's no love there or no intimacy or less love. Heaven is a world of love, not less than marriage, not below marriage, but infinitely beyond it. And it will be unimaginably great. In fact, we will be married in some sense, won't we? Not to our spouses, but to our Lord. As Scripture teaches, our Lord is our bridegroom. Some of you who fear this idea that there's no marriage in heaven, perhaps it is because you get too much of your identity from your spouse. And you have taken a good thing and you've made it an ultimate thing. This is what our friends the Mormons do. The Mormons have taught that marriage is essential to becoming your ascension into uh, divinity. In order for you to be a god, you have to get married. And it's probably better to have multiple wives because your offspring is what you will use to fill countless worlds in order to worship you as you ascend into godness. Right? And so what they have done is a satanic deception and it's exalt or exalted something that's good and for them it has become ultimate. Marriage is more important to them than God because marriage is how they become gods. But of course, we don't want to become gods, do we? We just want to be united with ours. That He's our love and He's our greatest love. This is why the Bible in the book of Revelation calls you know, the, the eternal life like the marriage supper of the Lamb, that Christ is the bridegroom and the, the church is the beloved. And so the greatest earthly marriage here is simply a shadow of the reality to come and no one in heaven, as I say, will, will ever say, I wish it was like that again. We will all say, now I see what it was all about. And it's about Jesus. Is that your hope in the resurrection? Sometimes we think about heaven and we think, okay, I well, can't wait to, I can just sleep in and there's no responsibility and there's picnics by the lake and there's a beautiful garden and there's mountains to climb and I, I can eat all the ice cream in the world and none of the pounds, right? I can't wait for heaven. And you say, well, what about Jesus? Oh yeah, Jesus too. He, and he could eat ice cream with me and we'll go on picnics together. Right? Yeah, Jesus, yeah, yes to relationships and Yes to the absence of tears. And yes to the end of sin. But ultimately, what we want is Jesus. Our hearts are made for Jesus. Our hearts are restless. Our brother once said, Augustine, until they find rest in God. Or the psalmist says, Whom in heaven have I but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. It's all about Christ. And you will see it as clear as possible in that day. And so we want our families today to help us to love Christ and to serve Christ through our families and to be more like Christ in our families. We, I love how there's, we got all these kids around here and the nursery's full and praise God that we have these kids and young families coming. But listen, Hamilton Baptist Church is not a family-centered church. In the sense that we don't think coming here will help you as a church to have a better family. That's not what we're about because jesus does not exist to help you have a better family your families exist to help you understand who jesus is and serve jesus better and understand how to love christ and to point you to christ and and give you opportunities to become disciples of christ so rather than a family-centered church you know what we are a christ-centered church right and as we follow christ in our marriages we will learn to love christ better and to become more like jesus and so that's his truth about marriage. And I have taken way too much time. And so briefly, let me just share with you the truth about immortality. According to verse 36. He says, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and sons of God being sons of the resurrection. The phrase equal to angels, most translations say like angels. I think I prefer that. Jesus is not saying we will become angels. You, you do not go to heaven to get your wings. But like, like angels. Now remember the Sadducees denied the existence of angels. So I think Jesus is intentionally putting this in here. Of course, the question is, how do we become like angels? Well, we don't have to speculate. He tells us there in verse 36. For they cannot die anymore because they are like angels. Angels don't die. Angels never have died. And so there, in heaven is a place of no death, that death is impossible. 
In other words, not, not we won't die, you won't be able to die. They cannot die, Jesus says. Death will itself forever die. And so in heaven there will be forever. No, no more Sutherland Springs tragedies or anything like that forever and ever and ever. In fact, we'll be sons of God, will we not? In fact, the whole question that this came up with is providing a son or an heir for a man. And Jesus turns it back and says, well, it's not so important who's whose son. What's important is that you're God's son and that God is making sons. You're his child if you're in Christ. You, that means you're an heir, co-heirs with Christ, right? The son was the heir. You received the father's name and the father's rank and the, the father's estate. And sometimes we read passages like that and say, well, why doesn't Jesus say sons and daughters? What about the girls? What about the women? Is Jesus a chauvinist? Now, please understand that what Jesus is talking about in this day, women did not inherit anything. They weren't heirs. They didn't get status. They didn't get rank. They didn't get their father's estate. And so what Jesus is saying in the resurrection, whether you're a male or a female, you're all sons. He's elevating women. In other words, you're all heirs, men and women. We all will come and, and Jesus is being radical here that we all, whether man or, or woman, will inherit the father's status. Blessed are the meek, he said, for they shall inherit the earth. We shall live forever as children of God, heirs with Christ. So he tells us about the eternal life, but then he proves it to be true. So consider, secondly, the proof of the resurrection. So so he's exposed to them that they don't know about the truth. They don't know the Scripture. And Jesus, I want you to notice, we'll see this in a moment, Jesus not only knew the Scripture, Jesus believed the Scripture to be an authority. And he will rest his entire argument of the resurrection from Scripture. Now he could have said, I tell you it's true because I'm God and I, I'm the authority. And he, of course, is. Or he could have said, I, well, it's true because I was just there about 30 years ago. And I'm going back there. He could have done that. But he doesn't. He appeals to Scripture. Now, what Scripture did he use? Well, he could have used Daniel 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. He could have used Isaiah 26. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy, for the earth will give birth to the dead. Could have used Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Of course, Sadducees wouldn't accept any of those scriptures, would they? And so in kindness to them, He actually appeals to one of their books. And does not appeal to an obscure law as they just have, but he goes right to one of the main events in the history of redemption. In fact, they brought up Moses. Jesus says, okay, let's talk about Moses. Let's talk about when Mo God revealed himself to Moses, as we see in verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So Jesus says that when God is revealing himself to Moses, he's just not revealing something about himself, though he is. He's also revealing something about Abraham because he is the God of Abraham. Hundreds of years after Abraham has died. If I came to you and say, hi, I was a friend of your father's, you would assume one of two things have happened or both. Either the relationship has ended or your father has died. But if I come to you and say, hi, I'm Stephen, I'm a friend, I, I'm, I'm a friend of your father's, we would have to conclude two things. One, your father's still living. And two, the relationship still continues. So when God is saying hundreds of years after Abraham died, I'm the God of Abraham, what he's saying is that Abraham is alive. And we continue into relationship. Isaac is alive. Jacob is alive, as Jesus says in verse 38. Now he is not God of the dead. These men are not dead, in other words, but of the living, for all live to him. If you, you ever love someone, you never want to speak about that relationship in the past tense, right? No one ever wants to say, I had a son, I had a daughter. Some of you have faced that tragedy. No one ever wants to speak in the past tense. Please understand, God never speaks about relationships in the past tense. 
God has never, will never say, I had a son. He will never say, I had a daughter. He will never say, I had a father. I am their God. They are alive, for He is the God of the living and not of the dead. The eternal life is true and real, as Jesus explains. And I think in our hearts, if we are quiet enough, not just you, but everyone in this world, would have to conclude that there's something in us that drives us towards that truth. We live in this world that's very secular and says, you know, you know what we are is a long time ago, there's a big bang somewhere, and, and bam, billions of years later, here we are Sunday morning at Hamilton Baptist Church. And it's all a product of random molecules bouncing against each other in time and chance. And, and, and this is what our children learn. This is what the world believes. And pl- please understand, this is what, so what, what, what it gets down to is we die and we rot. We just rot. And then one day the sun will burn up and then and, and everything dies and no one will know that anything ever existed. It's just, it ends here. And, and, it, and if that's true, if we're just molecules in motion, then nothing matters. If it were just bang and here we are, nothing counts. I mean, there is no morality. Morality is a fiction. Goodness is a fiction. My dogs don't think in terms of morality. Right? Why do we? What's going on? If man would just emerge, then people don't count and nothing counts. And yet we know that, we know that not to be true. We know that there is good and evil. We know there's right and wrong. We know that some things are, 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 are wicked and should not be done. Where, where do we get that? Well, so we're made for something. God has put this in us. We're made to live forever. We're made for God and we can't escape Him. And we're made to be in a relationship with Him, a covenant. In fact, he's using the language of covenant here. He speaks about being the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He says, I'm in a relationship with these men. And by the way, the, the, the covenantal promises given to Abraham and the patriarchs have not been fulfilled. Abraham never received the promised land. Abraham was never given what God had promised him. But Abraham looked forward to the future and to the uh, eternal life and recognized that's when God will actually fulfill his promises. You read the book of Hebrews. It says, by faith, Abraham went to the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He says, all these people were living by faith when they died, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham said, oh, he will keep his promise and God will. He, that's what Jesus is saying. I'm still in a relationship with him. I'm going to do what I said because I'm the God of the living. There's life after death. Jesus proves it according to God's word that the pain and poverty and justice and abuse and tragedy of this life will all be over soon. Now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you believe that, what difference does that make in your life? Should not this hope Right? A hope of no illness, a hope of no tragedy, a hope of no death. Shouldn't, that, shouldn't you therefore live differently than those who do not have that hope? And I, I would encourage you, get together with someone over lunch today and say, okay, because of the resurrection, how will my life specifically this week be different? How will I live differently in this life? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we only hope in Christ for this life, we are be pitied above all men. It says if, listen, all the sacrifice we do for Christ and even the suffering we do for Christ, if there's no ever, uh, afterlife, Paul says, we are fools. What are we doing? Let's go eat, drink, and be merry and wring as much out of this world as we possibly can. We're to be pitied if there is no life after death. But there is. And so what that means is you can trade the small pleasures of comfort and the false pleasures of sin for everlasting treasures in heaven. Do you live as if you believe that there is a resurrection. He is God of the living. He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac, God of Jacob. He's the God of everyone who's trusted in him. And he will raise them from the dead. As Jesus, lastly, and we'll end with this, teaches us the source of the resurrection. Look at verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dare to ask him any question. So with this, you end all the confrontations of Jesus. Every major group has now approached him. Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians, scribes, elders, priests. 
Every group has come against Jesus, challenged him. Every group has failed. There's not even a debate. You, every debate I've ever seen, someone asks a question, someone responds. There's always a follow-up question. There's a give and take. No, when they ask Jesus a question, he answers one. He gives one answer, and they are so dumbstruck that they have nothing else to say. In, in fact, the more they asked Jesus, the better Jesus looked, and the worse they did. And so finally, you see in verse 40, they simply just stopped asking him questions. Of course, it's taken them a while to learn that. They've asked a lot of questions. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Why do you do what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Who, who, what shall I do to inherit a life? Who is my neighbor? By what authority? Should we pay taxes? Is there a resurrection? In fact, Luke 12, 11 summarizes by saying, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him, something he might say. They just keep peppering him for years with questions, trying to catch him over and over again. In fact, it didn't even start in his public ministry. It started all the way back in Luke 2 when Jesus was 12 and left at the temple and they found him amongst the teachers, perhaps these very same men who confront him at this time. And Luke says they were amazed at his answers. Jesus amazes with his answers. No one could catch him. Just ask the devil. He has an answer for every question. Revealing truth about himself, truth about sin, truth about salvation, truth about eternal life. And finally, they just stopped asking questions. Their defeat is complete before the confounding brilliance of the Lord. The enemies are left silent. And what a beautiful silence that is. When a skeptic encounters the Lord and he answers all their most difficult questions, the silence of the skeptic is to the glory of God as he reveals the truth about God. And Jesus reveals here, of course, the truth about eternal life. But please understand, my brothers and sisters, we don't receive eternal life simply by believing what Jesus taught. You understand that? Let me say that again. We do not receive eternal life simply by believing what Jesus taught. We need to enter into a relationship with Jesus. So yes, we believe what he taught. But our belief is a belief in such that it is a surrender to Him. It's a yielding of our life to Him. That God is not simply an object of our faith. He becomes our God. Jesus becomes our King. And not even death will stop that relationship. The Sadducees think marriage is this permanent institution. And Jesus says, no, the, the relationship that permanent, that will never be annulled, is the one we have with God. Because I have come to bring eternal life. He would say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall shall live. And then he looks Martha square in the eyes and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you believe that if you trust in Christ in such a way that you yield your life to him, you shall live forever? Those are the words of our Christ. Of course, Martha said, yes, Lord, I believe you are the son of God. Abraham lives. Jacob lives. Isaac lives. All who trust in Christ live and they will be raised again. But not everyone will. Look at verse 35. Those, he says, who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead. There are some who are worthy of that age. Others are not. Some might ask, well, what do I do to become worthy? Well, notice he didn't say you do anything to become worthy. The worthiness of that age is not something from what we do. It's something that is done to us. These men who are confounded by Jesus won't ask him any more questions, but they haven't surrendered to him. They'll catch Jesus, not in something he said, but under the cover of darkness. And they will crucify him. They will spit on him and they will mock him and they will hit him with rods and they'll put a crown of thorns on his head and they'll whip his back lacerate him and they will nail spikes through his hands and feet and hoist him up on a cross and he will endure unimaginable physical agony and beyond that he will bear the divine wrath of sin my sin my sin the punishment of my sin will be poured about on christ the punishment of the sin of all who believe on him and jesus will hang upon the cross and he will endure my hell so i can have his heaven and so the question is how how could he endure such suffering well, one pastor puts it this way. He could endure such suffering because he believed on Friday what he taught on Tuesday. That this life is not ultimate. There is a life to come. 
The book of Hebrews puts it this way. It was for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross. The joy of what? Everlasting life with God. In fact, I'll tell you what He taught on Tuesday. He not only believed on Friday, but He proved on Sunday by getting up from the dead, being raised for us, the firstborn from among the resurrection. And I tell you on the authority of the Word of God, if you trust Him, if you yield your life to Him, you too one day shall be raised into the resurrected age. You too shall be considered worthy of the resurrection from the dead, not by your works, but by His works. You too shall live with God forever where there are pleasures forevermore all by His grace. And it is that grace that this meal celebrates. That we would be reminded today as we take the elements in our hand that our hope that this life is not all there is is found in the spilled blood and the broken body of Jesus for sinners. Will you pray with me as we prepare for this meal? Our Father, we pray that You would help us even now to be renewed in our zeal over the life to come. And that we would be renewed in our joy that the reason we have a life to come, the reason we are worthy to attain to that age is that Jesus Christ has come has lived a life of sinless perfection and has brutally killed and was punished by You for us. And so we will think about His spilled blood and His broken body this morning as we are reminded that we shall live forever not by our goodness, but by His. We pray for our friend here that perhaps has not yielded their life to You. We ask, Father, that You would hold out the hope of eternal life to them. That that would fill their hearts with such delight that they would gladly bend a knee to a Savior who would die that they might have it. And that they would not refuse such an offer overflowing with infinite mercy and grace. Do this in their heart, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.